0: Let's continue reading. Um, Luke chapter 1 is on page 127 of the Blue Bibles. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Marlon and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Good morning, church.
1: Well, this morning, as we have talked about, we're going to be pondering with the question, uh, how do we respond in the midst of our suffering? So how about I pray and we'll we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you have given us your word, that in the midst of our circumstances, we don't need to fumble around in the dark and try and work out what to do, that Lord, you clearly guide us by your word and by Your Spirit, in the midst of Your people. God, as we look at Your Word this morning, would we see Your goodness, Your providence in the midst of our suffering, and Your good purposes in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how do you respond when you're at the end of yourself? in the midst of your suffering when, when nothing you've tried seems to be working, when life is continually throwing you curveball after curveball after curveball, when you keep setting ambitions and then you never attain those goals. If you're a parent, this happens multiple times a day, every single day. Nap is going to be three hours today, does not go as planned. <laughs> you're cooking, cooking dinner, slaving in the kitchen, my toddler's going to love this, and it ends up thrown on the floor after a fight for 45 minutes. Tonight. Tonight's gonna be the night I'm gonna get a restful night's sleep. <laughs> every every night when Paige and I turn the light off, no matter what time of night it is, as soon as I turn that light off, Ruben starts fussing. It's <laughs> a so sixth sense. How do you respond? Is it with patience and grace? Is it trusting that God is sovereign even over the fussiness of an 18-month-old? Or in your frustration and exhaustion, do you try and lecture your toddler at 4 a.m. about the importance of a proper circadian rhythm? This happens on less trivial stuff in our lives. With the plans we make, the dreams we have, the goals that go unfulfilled. Perhaps we hoped our family would look different at this point in our life our health, our career, our studies, our faith? How do we reconcile this with the goodness of a sovereign God? In the midst of this, do you move towards God in trust and faith, or do you move away from Him and try and fix things yourself? As we look at the book of Ruth this morning, as we've, we've discussed, these, these characters are wrestling with the same thing. They're in the midst of a famine. How are they going to respond? In faith and trust or with fixing things themselves? Before we look at the scripture, it's, it's good to have a couple notes as we work our way through. The first thing is, as, as these characters respond, the author isn't giving us running commentary on, Ruth decided to do this, it was good. Naomi's decided to do this, it was bad. But I think, even though it's not explicit, it's very clear that the author's trying to tell us who did the right thing and who did the wrong thing, and we'll see that as we work through the book. The other thing is, when we see the, the capital letter, Lord, and we've talked about this during other Old Testament books, that is that's Yahweh, is what um, that is in Hebrew. And so I'm using, I'll swap back and forth between God, Yahweh, Lord, uh, throughout the sermon, And that's referring to the triune God of the Bible who has revealed himself. Uh, This morning, I don't have specific points per se, but I'm just going to follow headings as we work through the chapter. And those five headings are the context, the decision, the consequences, yeah, the journey home and the arrival. So we'll start with the context. Well, verse 1 opens up like any good narrative with the who, what, why, where, when. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of the wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remain there. Who? A man and his wife and kids. What? Left to go soldier. Why? Due to a famine. Where? From Judah to Moab. And when? In the times when the judges ruled. But I want to step back even further and give a little bit more context to this, which is basically the history of creation up until this point. <laughs> That should only take an hour or so, and then we'll move into the next chapter. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and places Adam and Eve in His garden, and everything was good. They are God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then we know what happens in Genesis 3. They sin, and they are expelled from the garden. But God makes them a promise. He will... Raise up his seed, Uh, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. There'll be a way to rectify this one day. But the Bible progresses and things go from bad to worse. And nine chapters in, we already have God just wiping out all of humanity in a flood because sin has just got that bad. But then we have Abraham. God makes him a promise. He's the one. He's the one who will raise up uh, to be his people in his place under his rule. He promises he will give them a land, he'll make them a great nation. This is going to be Eden 2.0, God's people in a land flowing of milk and honey, living under God's rule. And then we have some hiccups along the way. Yes, Abraham becomes a great nation, Israel, but they become slaves in Egypt. But in miraculous acts that we read throughout the books of Exodus, God displays His power, His glory, and His ability to save in leading a couple million Jews out from slavery to uh, His promised land. But on the way, they get given, given the law, which we just read about in Leviticus 26. There's promises for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. Before they even get to the land, they're disobedient by not being willing to take it, and they spend 40 years wandering the desert. But finally, God miraculously again raises up Joshua, they conquest the land of Canaan. God's power and might is on display once again. And finally, finally they're here. They're God's people. They've been given His law. They're under His rule and they're now taking into His place the land flowing of milk and honey, meaning it's going to be rich, it's going to be fertile. They're going to have everything they need. And where does the book of Ruth start? With a family packing up and leaving the land. Because of a famine... Something has gone horribly wrong. <laughs> so there's a decision to make. Well, there's a decision that they have made. As Braden alluded to, I'm, I'm, I believe that this famine would, is caused by raids from, the, from enemies, so it's not necessarily... Um, you know, that it's not raining. But there is a shortage of food because every time they grow something, it's being taken by their enemies. And so it's not only just a famine that they're experiencing, but oppression and danger and fear of of death. So this is a hard decision that they're making. If they stay, it means they're going hungry, they're living in a famine. It means not knowing where their next meal is going to come from, It means a very real threat from enemies, likely death. How is Elimelech supposed to care for Naomi, his wife, and his two sons? What should he do under these conditions? His only choice is to leave, right? Staying would mean he needs to completely surrender his life to the sovereign will of God. It means putting total trust in God's provision for him. That's hard to do. Safety's just over the mountain. Safety's over there in Moab. Safety, there's there's access to food over there. Elimelech has the the opportunity here to just take things into his own hand, provide for himself, provide for his family. But leaving would mean not trusting God. Leaving would mean explicitly disobeying God's commands that, that he's given to his people. Leaving would be ignoring all of God's provision for Israel up until that point. It wasn't that long ago. Elimelech's parents, maybe, this is early on in Judges, as Braden said, Elimelech's parents, maybe his grandparents, that was that generation in the desert for 40 years where it was literally raining food from heaven and they were taken care of. Had he forgotten about God's provision? What's a little bit of famine to the all-powerful God of the Bible, the creator and sustainer of the universe? But the decision to, to stay means that they are would be entrusting themselves to God and to His promises, even though things look bleak. But the decision to go would mean they're trusting their own plans are stronger than God's. By deciding to leave, Elimelech and Naomi are showing what they truly believe. It's one of those things throughout this, this book where the author's not saying, they made a bad decision by going, but I think it's It's pretty clear that we're meant to pick up on that. What do Elimelech and Naomi believe? If they truly believe they're part of God's people, why would they want to separate from them? If they really believe they're living in God's place, why would they leave it? Elimelech's name translates literally to, my God is king. If he believes that Yahweh is his king, why would he forsake his commandments? How often do we evaluate our decisions this way? What are our underlying beliefs? If we believe that we are in Christ, then why do we try and find our identity elsewhere? If we we believe that we are redeemed, why do we live as if we're not? If we believe that Christ died to take our our sin away from us, then why do we try to cling to it so tight? For Eli Melek and co, staying in Bethlehem or moving to Moab isn't just an arbitrary decision about where they're going to live, like it would be if we decided to move to Sydney or, I mean, why, why, where else will we go in Australia or Sydney? We can have good, valid biblical reasons for living in both places. We can glorify God in either place. But Naomi's decision is a little bit more black and white than that. A closer comparison decision for us would be will we be a part of a church? or will we not be? Will we be living in God's people, uh, living with God's people under His rule, or do we go it alone and turn our place on God's people, in God's place, and go elsewhere? At the risk of laboring the point, there's actually a lot of similarities between God's church and Israel. Like the Promised Land, there was a big multi-century campaign to, to get there for people able to get entrance into it. In our case, the church, the creator of the universe, had to die so that, we could, so that we could enter. Like Israel going into the land of Canaan, there needed to be a conquest. In their case, it was con- conquest of their enemies. In our case, Jesus, Jesus' conquest over Satan, sin, and death. There's a similar purpose for Israel dwelling in the land, to be God's uh, witness to display His glory to the world. Like the church, city on a hill, light on the stand. Israel was provided for and sustained by God in the Promised Land, and God has made it clear that His people were to be a part of it. Like God's church, He provides for us, sustains us, and makes it clear to we are be, that we are to be a part of it. Yet, how often when we're in need, when there's a famine in our soul, when we're exhausted and we're at the end of ourselves, how often do we make decisions just like Naomi and Elie Malik, That we believe the rest we need, the joy we seek, the peace and comfort we need is going to be found elsewhere. I'll be the first to admit that I'm guilty of this. It's easy to believe that a Sunday morning on the couch or on the beach or just somewhere else <laughs> Is going to provide the rest that I need. That's where I find my peace. Perhaps Elimelech and Naomi thought that leaving Judah was actually God's provision for them. Even if that was the case, if they genuinely thought that this is God providing them a way out from the famine, it's still. Sin. It's still disobedient. God has made it clear in His Word to not separate from His people. Brothers and sisters, if you have found a solution to your problems that requires you to be disobedient to God's Word, that is not the solution that God has provided. The Israelites had a day each week built into their way of life called a Sabbath, which his whole purpose was designed to remind them that God provides. Rest on the seventh day. God will, God will sustain. God will provide. Elimelech and Naomi clearly had forgotten this. Isn't it, isn't it so easy to read stories like this in the Bible and just be like, guys, why don't you get this? Come on, like time and time and time and time and time and time and time again throughout the Bible, it's clear. Do the right thing, and it's, it's going to be all right. Trust God. He's provided for you. In suffering, God's going to provide for you. Again, throughout, and then when it's suffering, it's like, oh no, what's happening? We need to go somewhere else to find. God's failed at us once again. It's, it's so easy just to facepalm, and yet we do the same thing. We forget who God is and what He's done so quickly. Even though, like the Israelites, we have a day a week specifically built into our way of life to pause, reflect, remember, and rest. That's what we do on a Sunday. We sing songs that remind us of God and His goodness and His gospel and what He's provided for us. We hear God's Word being preached. We hear about His mighty deeds and how He has redeemed us from the pit. We hear that He's provided us everything we need for life and godliness. We, we gather as God's people to encourage one another, to care for one another, to point one another towards Christ. We take the Lord's Supper, again, specifically remembering His death and proclaiming it till He comes again. This is so that as we face the inevitable challenges we're going to face that week, the sufferings that we're going to face that week, we have our eyes fixed on Christ. And the way we respond to our suffering in the midst of the week is in light of God's proven goodness and trustworthiness. We rest and we entrust ourselves into the hands of a sovereign God. But Elimelech and Naomi have made their decision, which takes us to our next heading the consequences. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Immediately, At least, according to the narrative, Eli Melech dies. We don't know how, or why, or what from, but I think again, the author is trying to to show us here, uh, at at least in light of the covenant with the God's made with Israel, that this is this is God's judgment. Eli Melech has been disobedient. We just read in Leviticus 26 that there's going to be consequences for that. And now you might be thinking, is this fair? Elimelech was just trying to do the right thing, wasn't he? He was just trying to provide for his family, put food on the table. Those are good godly desires. And the next minute he's dead. Come on, God, what's going on? Well, this is sin. Sin requires judgment. God is just. He will carry out His judgment. Good intentions the best of intentions even, do not justify doing what God has said is wrong. There is so much sin being done. So much sin in the name of good intentions, a lot of sin in the name of love specifically, that will be judged. I know when I was reading through this the first time, it's easy for me to Look at verse 3 and just kind of gloss over it. Eli Malik dies, all right, what happens next? No, a man, a husband, a father has died. We need to feel the weight of this. The wages of sin is death. Death is real, judgment is real. But we should also be hopeful, right? The whole point of God's bringing judgment is to, to turn His people back to Him. They would see their sins, they would turn to Him in repentance faith. This is what Naomi needs. This is the wake-up call. It's going to be a shock to, to Naomi. She's going to realize that she's been, disobeyed, been disobedient, she's disobeyed the covenant, and she's going to return back to Judah, right? Back to God's promised land and His people. Surely that's what we're going to read in verse 4. Nope. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. So instead of repenting at this point, Naomi doubles down on her disobedience. She gives her kids in marriage to Moabite women. Again, this explicitly breaks God's commandments, given in Deuteronomy and and elsewhere. I think I have the verse. You should not intermarry with them, referring to the surrounding peoples, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Like it was when Naomi left Israel, this could be be willful disobedience. I know God's commands and I'm just going to disobey them anyway. Or it could be just ignorance. She might not know. Again, she needs her sons to have kids so that they can be looked after for and provided for. Either way, it's still sin. This is JR's illustration, so just prefacing that. But if you run a red light and have a terrible car accident, it doesn't matter whether you knew running the red light was right or wrong, there'll still be devastating consequences there regardless. And we see those devastating consequences in verse 5. Both Malon and Chileon died so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Sin, again, has brought judgment. Again, the author isn't saying, because Malone and Chileon married and Chile these women, they received God's judgment and died. But I think, again, the author is trying to be quite explicit here. There's a pattern. Disobedience, consequences. It's the same pattern we saw last week as we are working through the book of Judges. Israel would sin, there would be consequences. So, at this, in story, at this point in the story, there are now three people dead, Elimelech and his two sons, Melon and Chilion. Naomi has lost three immediate family members. What is going on? Does God not care about Naomi? And if you're thinking that He doesn't, if it seems like He doesn't, then do you extrapolate that out? Does God not care about me? Is the fact that Naomi is suffering here meaning that God's plans are failing? Because Naomi had made plans for a comfortable life, free from famine with her family in Moab, her plan to marry her kids off and have grandkids and, you know, nice house, double garage, white picket fence, kids running around, jumping in and out of the pool, maybe get a trampoline. Because those plans haven't come to fruition, does that mean God has, God has failed? Well, Naomi must be at the end of herself by this point. God's trying to get her attention. How is she going to respond? Is she going to acknowledge her sin? Is she going to confess and repent? Is she going to walk in obedience, step by step, back to Israel? back to God's people? Perhaps you can empathize, empathize with Naomi here. Have you been disobedient? Out of ignorance or willfully? Are there consequences to your sin that you're feeling? Has God been trying to get your attention? How are you going to respond? You're going to double down, marry your kids off? Or are you going to confess and repent? Brothers and sisters, if we are believers, if we believe that out of His love and mercy, Christ has taken his sin, uh, taking our sin upon Himself, this act of confession and repentance should be a daily exercise for us. Our lives should be marked by this. We should be praying with the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then when He graciously reveals our sin to us, we take it to the cross. Naomi started five verses ago, married, two kids, living in God's land. Here we are, five verses in, Naomi is a widow. She's lost her kids. She's living in the fields of Moab. But fortunately, this is not the end of her story. Fourth heading? Third heading? The Journey Home. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. It's finally clicked. Naomi has heard that the Lord has visited her people. She packs up. She's going back. She's done in Moab. Now, this could just be because she's hungry and the food's run out in Moab. But I think that there's some genuine faith here in Naomi's part. Although it's imperfect and it's immature, as we'll read later on in the story. But she hears that God has visited his people and provided food. She believes it. She believes that that he's provided. And she believes it enough. Well, she believes that she can actually partake of this provision as well. And she believes it enough that she's actually willing to pack up and go back. It leads her to action. That's why she sets from where she is and she starts making tracks back to Judah. But the journey is not without its uh, hiccups, I guess. It wasn't until like the fourth reading of this that I realized that this interaction that we're about to read happens on the way back. So uh, Orpha and Ruth were clearly committed enough that they packed up and started going and then they get... I don't know, maybe they're camping halfway there or something. And Naomi's like, No, I actually, go back. <laughs> I don't you, you just go back by yourself. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So mid-trip... Naomi stops, tells the daughters to go home. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your kindness with me and with your husbands who you've lost. And the Lord bless you. On your way. And again, even though I think Naomi has has some level of faith at this point that she's going back, there's still enough doubt, there's enough bitterness, there's enough hurt that she's experienced that she doesn't think Yahweh's goodness extends to her daughters-in-law. She doesn't think He'll provide for them. She wants to believe the report she's heard that God has visited His people, that there's once again food again in the fields of of, uh, Bethlehem. But she's not fully convinced and confident that God's not just going to treat her daughters the way that she feels like God has treated her. Naomi's interpretation of events up until this point is that Yahweh is not good. He's not being good to her. He's brought calamity upon her. He's gone out against her. She doesn't want her daughters to experience that. She loves her daughters. So she tells them to go. But initially, the daughters protest. They said to her, no, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi's insistent. Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown up? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake." that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi's saying, she's not going to have any more kids. She's not going to have a husband again anytime soon. And if she did, and gave birth that night, miraculously, her daughter's expected to wait, I don't know, what's marrying age then? 18? Younger? 16 years for them to, to marry and start bearing kids? No. Naomi says the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. Again, she thinks that Yahweh is not good. that He's malevolent. She's actively trying to convince her daughters, Yahweh is not for you. Don't follow Him. Don't come with me. He's, he's, he's against me. He's not going to be on your side. There's enough faith for her that she thinks she'll be able to eat, but there's not enough faith for her to think that Yahweh's goodness extends anywhere beyond that. Not for herself, not for her daughters. I'm not sure if you had these same kind of questions when you read this for the first time. But Naomi basically says, the Lord bless you, the Lord give you what you want, but also the Lord's not going to bless you. (laughs) The Lord won't provide for you. If you want provision, if you really want blessing, go back to Moab, go back to your people, go back to your gods. They're the ones that will care for you. My, My ones." He's, he's shown himself he's not. You don't. Go back. Their response? They wept. Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orphah believes Naomi's testimony about who Yahweh is. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. She heads home. We never hear from her again. Have you noticed that this journey home or journey to, to Israel for Ruth and Orpah is going to require them to make the same decision that Elimelech and Naomi had to make 10 or so years prior? Will I trust the Lord? Will I follow Him in obedience and faith in the face of what seems like a lot of reasons not to? Orpha doesn't need a whole lot more convincing. She believes Naomi. She's on her way. Yep, Yahweh's not for me. He's not the one that's going to be able to provide. I'll go back to my gods for that. It's interesting, we don't actually know what happens to Orpha after this. Maybe she died on the journey back. Maybe, once she returned to Moab, she got everything she wanted. The perfect life, Husband, kids, found a good school for them. She could have been completely satisfied with her life and never realized that she was missing out on the best thing that life has to offer. Redemption. And a relationship with the living, redeeming God. It's worth asking, is that you this morning? Maybe you're completely satisfied where your life is at without Christ. Perhaps you've got everything you've wanted, everything you've dreamed. But you're missing out on Christ's redemption without a relationship with the Creator and sustaining the living God of the universe. If that is you, don't walk away here today content with the things of this world. They are fleeting. Its satisfactions will never last. Don't miss out on on experiencing God's redemption. Orphel leaves. Ruth knuckles down. She's not going anywhere. She clings to Naomi. Have you thought about Naomi's witness in the midst of this? It's a good thing to ask yourself. Does your suffering lead others towards God or away from Him? When you talk about God in the midst of your suffering, what does it sound like? Are you more prone to emulate Naomi here than, say, Ruth? You know, they've both suffered, right? Naomi's lost her husband and kids. Ruth's lost her husband. She hasn't got any kids Are you prone to be more like Naomi, saying, the Lord has brought disaster upon me? Or Paul, who could say, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you believe James when he says, Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness, when it has its full effect, makes you complete and lacking in nothing. By the time we get to verse 15, Ruth is pleading with Ruth to go back. See, your sister's gone. Go back. Go to her people. Go to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth refuses. Do not urge me to go. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. and There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death pass, parts me from you." Ruth is willing to abandon everything she's ever known, her land, her family, her culture, her gods, to follow Naomi and Naomi's God, Yahweh. Ruth is so committed she calls down a curse upon herself if she parts for Naomi. Why is Ruth committed? Why is she so steadfast? Is this just because she's a really good daughter-in-law and she loves her mom, and so she's she's committed to, to the point of death? Or is there something more going on here that the author wants us to pick up? I think we're beginning to see here, and we will see throughout the rest of the book as we work through it, that Ruth's faith isn't in Naomi here to provide for her. Ruth's faith is in Yahweh. When she says, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God, she's using the same covenant formula that Yahweh uses repeatedly throughout Scripture. And we saw him use it in Leviticus 26. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Ruth is responding to that. Ruth has faith that Yahweh is legit. She believes that he has actually visited his people. She believes that he's provided for them. She's kind of doing the inverse of what Naomi has done in this story. Her heart is drawn to the better promises of God with his people than the lesser hopes Naomi tries to sell her. The gods of Moab, and her family there, they're nothing compared to Yahweh. should be the same for us. The things of this world, the pleasures, the satisfactions it has to offer, nothing compared to following Yahweh. In faith, Ruth is going towards the promised land instead of in doubt leaving it, like Naomi and Elimelech were. She's leaving her false gods to go be obedient to the true God rather than the other way around. She's, gonna, she's willing to die in a foreign land, to go die in Canaan, Naomi wasn't, which is why she left in the first place. Ruth is willing to come under judgment of Yahweh. That's what she says when she said, may the Lord do so to me. She's not trying to run from it. Ruth has counted the cost. Following Yahweh, it's worth it. She's willing to pay. And as the story progresses, we'll see, is the right call, <laughs> if there was any doubt. I don't, I don't know about you, but this reminds me of what Jesus says in Mark 10. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and sisters and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Ruth has found something she's willing to die for, the one true God. Not even Naomi, God's supposed representative, is going to stop her from following Him. Where is your faith anchored? Is it anchored in Christ, His goodness, His finished work of salvation, His promises, His sovereignty, or is it anchored in some hope in this ability for His ability to provide some worldly comfort, a good community, a good place for your kids? bunch of people who cook good meals for you every time you get sick or need to prepare a sermon the next day. Thank you, Aaron. These are good things. These aren't inherently bad. But they're not the anchor for our faith. The anchor for our faith is God. So how does Naomi respond to Ruth's faith? The way any good representative of God does, right? She said no more. The Hebrew is a bit more blunt than that. She stopped talking to her. (laughs) Once Naomi saw Ruth's commitment, she stopped trying to convince her to go back to Moab. Uh, Yeah, which takes us to our final scene. The arrival. So, the two of them went on their journey, I'm sure free from any kind of awkwardness at all, back to Bethlehem. (laughs) And when they came, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is that Naomi? Their arrival causes a scene. The town's shocked. Naomi's back? What's it been? 10, 15 years? The last time they they saw her, it was during a famine. I I guess she survived, but where's her husband? Where are her kids? She's getting on. Where where are her grandkids? How is she meant to take care of herself in her old age? How did she survive the famine? And who's that Moabite that she just brought back? Are they meant to be our enemies? (laughs) Naomi seemingly answers these questions in the next verse. She said, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi's name means sweet, but she wants to be called Mara, meaning bitter. Her perception is that God has dealt bitterly with her. Do you recognize that name Mara? If you've read through the book of Exodus, it's actually a place uh, that the Israelites stopped on the journey. As soon as they crossed the Red Sea, God's miraculous working, defeating of the enemies, walking through on dry land, yay, we made it. Three days in, they get three days and they start grumbling and complaining because the water is Mara. It's bitter. They called the place Mara after the bitter water. God, why are we here? What are you doing? You you bring us out here to kill us. How could you possibly be good if this is the case? If you were God at that point, as I often think throughout reading the book of Exodus, would you not just wipe out these stubborn, stiff-necked people who just do not get it? But God doesn't. Instead, He graciously heals the water. He provides for His people in patience and grace. What was a time for the, of the Israelites' sin, of the Israelites' bitterness? It became a time where God showed His great grace and compassion for His people. Again, I think that's one of the hints the author wants us to pick up here. What is a time for Naomi of bitterness, of her complaining, God, why have you done this to me? Is going to be a time where God shows His great love, grace, and compassion. Naomi's interpretation of events is that God has been bitter, that He has brought calamity upon her, that He is against her. Is that fair? Is that a fair interpretation of the events so far? Yes? No? Kind of, right? Like, there's an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty throughout this book Naomi's lost her husband, she's lost her kids, she's lost any sense of at least worldly security and not having grandkids to work and take care of her. But also, it's kind of not a fair interpretation. There are things that Naomi isn't seeing about her suffering in this yet. She hasn't seen that God is drawing her back to Himself, that He sustained her. Protected her, even through her wandering and disobedience. I mean, he just provided the most beautiful, kind, patient, long-suffering daughter-in-law, and she doesn't even get a mention here. And Naomi's life is going to play a huge role in the course of human history. As we get to the end of the book, Braden already kind of gave it away, but I don't want to get to there yet. <laughs> God is at work in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her calamity. How often can we look back at periods of suffering in our life and see that God was at work in the midst of that? That He used it for our good. And yet, how offering in the midst of our present suffering... Can we not see how in any way God could possibly use this for good? We need to remember. We need to see the witnesses in Scripture. We need to care for, love for, pray for one another, and remind us, remind ourselves of God's goodness through periods of suffering. God is still good, brother. God is sovereign sister. He cares for you. You're not alone. He's working out his purposes for your good and for his glory. Verse 22. Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The chapter ends with another who, what, why, where, when. This time there's a, a glimmer of hope. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. The reports they heard were true. The Lord had visited His people. He had provided for them. You might get to the end of this chapter and be going, okay, what do I do with all this information? (laughs) Well, the same condition affected Naomi and Elie Melech's and authors. decision-making, it still affects us. That condition is sin. When we are faced with our own suffering and our own trials, our own unfulfilled desires and unfulfilled dreams, when we're backed up against the wall, we try and come up with our own solutions. We pack up our proverbial bags and we head for Moab literally thinking the grass is greener on the other side. And then oftentimes when things still don't work out, instead of acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our propensity to try and fix things ourselves, we pull a Naomi. We double down on our sin and we use it as an excuse for even more sin and disobedience. We too, like Naomi and Elimelech, comfort our comfort and worldly security more than our obedience. So what's the solution then? Just keep trying harder? White knuckle it? Keep telling ourselves we won't do it again? Next time we're faced with a crucial decision or one of the 50,000 decisions we have to make each day, that we're just going to do better next time. Maybe we just hope that our good intentions good intentions to avoid suffering, as long as it's not hurting anyone, that's enough to help us avoid judgment. No, that is not the solution. Like Ruth, we need to anchor our faith in Yahweh, in the Lord. In the midst of our disobedience, like Naomi, we need to move our feet. We need to leave Moab. We need to look to Christ, to trust that God has indeed visited His people. When we are suffering, we need to look to the suffering one. The one that though He was God, He humbled Himself and came in the likeness of a servant. That though He had done nothing wrong, He lived a perfect, sinless life and was crucified on a Roman cross. The one that though He was dead, was made alive the one that now offers forgiveness and redemption for all those who turn from their sin in repentance and faith and put their trust in Him. The main thing I want us to see throughout this passage is that suffering is not an obstacle to God accomplishing His purposes. But often it's the very means by which He does so. That was the case for Naomi. That was the case for Christ. That's the case for me, and that's the case for you. So, if we believe this, how do we respond in our suffering and frustrations, our unfulfilled dreams, hopes, desires? The only way we're going to trust God's plan instead of coming up with our own is to look beyond our suffering, look beyond the allures and hopes that sin offers us, and trust that Christ, the suffering one, has gone before us, that He offers us a better future. What He offers us is greater than what we could possibly achieve for ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us. So often in the midst of our suffering, we do anything we can to avoid, to avoid it. Even being disobedient. Jesus, we thank you that out of your obedience you suffered for us. God, would you anchor that truth deep in our hearts. But as we are faced with the challenges of life in a fallen world, the the struggles of our own sin, that we would turn to you in repentance and faith and trust that you are good. God, would you help us love and care and serve one another as your church in the midst of this? Lord, would we be acutely aware that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers? God, help us care and love for one another well in a way that displays your glory to this world.